We have two things today uh, uh, that are due, a homework assignment. I know a number of you have turned in already, a couple submitted on D2L. Um, I'll take it after class, between class and lab if you like, or submitted on D2L before 6 o'clock tomorrow morning and we'll get credit, we'll get you credit for that. So that's homework number four. Uh, there is a quiz in class today. I didn't give you anything specific to study because everything you need for it, I'm going to go over right in class, right before, right, the lecture right before it, and then give you the quiz. So hopefully it's not, hopefully it won't be too bad that way. Um, second article review is due on Monday. If I didn't tell you last time, I know a couple people have asked me among my classes, and you are allowed to use one of the articles. Did I tell you that on last time? The article list that I had up there, you can choose a second one. Please don't do the same one again. But choose a second article. You are allowed to use that list again and choose an article. You don't have to go find a separate one if you want to use one of those. You're, of course, welcome to go find an article of your own if, if you like. And then coming up uh, the following week, we have homework five, which I have for you now. I'll give that out to you now because we're covering the first five questions we're starting and the rest of it will be on to starting on Monday we'll get to the next, we'll start the next chapter on it. There is one of those yucky equations on it. I'm going to show you a little bit of it today. Don't let it dry. Again, you won't see it on the exam. You won't see it on the quizzes. But I am going to, I am going to show you it here for calculating the, calculating the distances. So you will see that on there. Three, four, I believe. You got one? Okay. Okay. Is that the one I gave? Uh, you might have one. <laughs> if you have got the other one by mistake, this, that this one, yep, that's the one. There you go. You, you need that one? Okay. Okay. So I'm going to actually look at that question. I'm not going to go through a calculation with it specifically, but I'm going to actually uh, show you that equation and talk about it a little bit in the lecture portion today. No, that has nothing to do with the quiz though. That will not be on the quiz at all, at all. All right. So any questions on? Questions on assignments? We're good. Don't forget the homework. Quiz, hard to forget if you're here. It won't be hard to forget if you're here because I'll hand those out in a little bit here. All right. Well, picture of the day for today then is an open star cluster, uh, Messier 6. So the open star cluster is this grouping of bluish stars. Uh, which is a very young star cluster. We know it's very young because there are so many blue stars there. And we're going to look a little more at the HR diagram today. But blue stars are the ones that appear way to the upper right here, upper left of the main sequence. And they don't live very long. Their lives are very, very short. Uh, measured in millions of years, tens of millions, maybe a hundred million years. Again, long time for us, short time for a star very short time because stars like the Sun last billions of years, so 10 million years to a star like the Sun is nothing. And that's how long some of these stars live. So we know that they had to form relatively recently. They can't have been there for a very long, a long time. So we have those there. We also see some of the color differences that we've talked about. You can see some very, they're definitely very blue stars. You can see some other ones that are very definitely red, much, much cooler stars that would fall much further to the right on the HR diagram. So this is kind of what's left over. We've looked at some areas of star formation on these photos of the day. Our next unit, uh, the next chapter is on star formation and nebulae and you know how this kind of thing begins to form. So that's really our next chapter. But 
what we're really what we can really look at is just how many the, just the number of different stars that can form and what what happened to everything. They formed out of gas and dust. All the gas and dust is gone now. I think we looked at a picture was it last week or the week before where the the nebula was being sculpted, being sculpted out by the intensity of these stars. Well, if you that was very early on in that cluster's life, the the gas and dust was still around it. In this case, it's gone. All that gas and dust has been moved out, has been pushed away, and there's very little gas or dust visible here. Probably if you took a very, very deep image, exposed it for a very long time, you'd still see some of that gas and dust scattered around here that the stars have not quite cleared, cleared out. But for the most part, it's gone. Except for the gas and dust at the top of the screen. The little greenish object up there is actually a comet, Comet Sighting Spring. And that is up here. We see the head of the comet. Deep down inside that is the nucleus. The nucleus is a city-sized block of or ball of ices and dust. Would be incredibly tiny, you know, a little pinpoint in the center here. Couldn't even, couldn't even see it to this scale. And the material from that is evaporated off and forms a halo around the comet around that nucleus and then is pushed back by the sun. So you see the tail back behind it. Now, nicely framed and pretty picture, but one of the other reasons that we're uh, posted, this is posted today, is that in two days this comet is going to pass extremely close to Mars. It's actually going to pass about 100,000 miles from Mars. How far is that? Well, it's about one-third of the distance between the Earth and the Moon. That's how close it's going to be to Mars. So if it was coming that close to Earth, it would be passing you know, three times closer to us than the Earth's moon. It would be a beautiful sight for a comet passing that close to us, extremely bright and really close to us, would cover a big chunk of the sky. It's not going to strike Mars. It's going to miss it still you know, by 100,000 miles or so. But it will be studied in great detail by all of the objects that we have out there. We have the rovers on two rovers still working on the surface of Mars. We have several orbiting spacecraft studying Mars. So they're going to look at this comet in much more detail and get some close-up images and be able to study it you know, even more. The other comet that's being studied, I'm going to go back one picture of the day for the one for yesterday, is this one. It's a pretty image too. Uh, this is actually the Rosetta spacecraft. This is the, one of its solar panels here. Arm going in, holding that to the craft here. We're taking, the picture is being taken from a landing craft that is actually going to detach from this next month and land on this smaller lobe of the comet. So it's actually going to land on the comet. This is the nucleus of the comet. So this is actually that nucleus. That would be that little tiny pinpoint at the center of the other image we just looked at. That would be that tiny pinpoint. That's where all that material is coming from. It's coming from this little tiny object Tiny, yeah, city-sized, but really small compared to a planet, compared to most asteroids. It's really, really tiny. And we're going to have the first landing, first soft landing on a comet coming up here next month in about a month. Well, I think it detaches on the 12th of November, so a little over a month from now. So hopefully we'll get some really nice images and a lot of nice information to look at about this comet to be able to study it. So it's going to be a lander. It's going to actually land there. Because of the low gravity, it actually has grips that are going to grip into the surface to hold it, kind of hold it on there, because that's the type of uh, object that if you were there, you know, you could run around and jump right off of it. And you could completely, the escape velocity is so low that you'd be able to just jump off of it yourself. 
So wanted to show that one as, as two as well, um, just because it, they're two tied together with the comets, with two things coming up with comets. This one, the lander coming up uh, next month that we'll get to see, and then the very close approach to Mars of the comet siding spring that we looked at today. And that does happen. I mean, comets do go real close. They've hit, they've hit Jupiter. They've hit Earth in the past. And they'll hit Earth again in the future. They've hit any of the other planets. So comets do actually come even closer and actually impact. But most of the time, they'll just happen to pass by at varying, at varying distances. So, questions? And two pictures. Yes, ma'am. Can you tell how old a specific star is? Not easily. It's, it's difficult to tell. We have some ways to study that we can estimate things, but just looking at a general star and to tell you how far along it is is not something that's really easy necessarily to do. We can tell you how long it lives. With the sun, we have the advantage of being able to date objects in the solar system. So we can say, well, it must be so old because we have moon rocks that are four and a half billion years old. We have earth rocks that are an asteroid. We can get all those pieces and say, well, they've been around this long. The sun must have been around that long. So we can get sort of an estimate that way. But for another star, it would be really difficult to say whether this one is right at the edge of its life or is it just starting. Other than looking at you know, clues, is there a lot of you know, leftover material around it? Well, it probably formed recently then. So there are some clues you can get, but to really get an accurate age is, is difficult. There's not really a good way to be able to do that. Good. Anything else? Nope, nope, nope. All right. Let's go back to this. Here we were looking at the HR diagram, and I'd had this much up, I believe, last time. I think I, I, might, have, well, I might have added a little bit more. Let's see. So I'm going to start start picking up from from there. Um, I think the only thing I added in, I might have, I don't know if I had the temperatures in. I think I just put simply hot and cold, and the spectral classes are O, B, A, F, G, K, M, as the primary spectral classes going there again. No matter which one you're measuring, they're all measuring the same thing. They're all measuring how hot the star is. The hottest stars are to the left, and the coolest stars are to the right. It just depends on how you're going about making those measurements. If you're looking at the spectra, you'll get a spectral class. If you're measuring the intensities of the stars, you'll get a color index. The only way you really get temperature is if you're doing a theoretical calculation. So if you're doing models, that you put into the computer, well, it's not automatically going to come out necessarily with magnitudes or spectral classes. It's going to come out directly with temperatures. So those are the three different things you can plot on the, X, on the x-axis. The other thing we want to look at is the y-axis. What do we plot on the other side? It's some measure of the brightness, some way of measuring the brightness of the star. And it could be luminosity. Increasing upwards, how luminous is it? Usually we do that, compare it to the sun. It's 10, 10 solar luminosities, it's 10 times brighter than the sun. It's two solar luminosities, it might be twice as bright as the sun. It might be half of the solar. Usually we do in terms of luminosity, we compare it relative to the sun. So very, very bright stars could be hundreds or thousands of times brighter than the sun. Very faint stars could be tenths, hundreds of times as bright as the sun. The other thing we can plot there directly is, an, is a magnitude and is the absolute magnitude. Absolute magnitude is how bright something uh, it really is. 
how bright an object a star would be if it were about 32 light years away from us. So it doesn't have any dependence on the distance. And we can use that as a me another measure of the luminosity. So those are two different things we can plot there. And there's a third one that you can sometimes plot there in special cases, and that's the apparent magnitude. The apparent magnitude is much nicer if you can plot it because that's what you get when you go out and look at the sky. That's how bright stars appear to be. But it has a problem in that it depends on the distances. Because you can have a really, really bright star that's so close to us, that's going to make it look like it's way up here at the top of the diagram. But it might not really be all that bright. Right? The sun is the brightest thing in the sky. The sun would have an apparent magnitude that's way up off the scale here. But that's not really where it belongs on the diagram. But there are special cases where we can plot this. So I'm going to kind of mark that one off that you can't just always plot apparent magnitude. If you do, you'll have problems with, you might have stars that are all the same spectral class, all the same temperature, all exactly the same size, but they're all at varying distances. And they're all going to look different brightnesses. They're all going to have different apparent magnitudes because the close ones are going to look brighter and the further ones are going to look fainter just because of the distance. So this, the problem is this, is that it depends on, dis it has a distance. So when can we use that? Well, we can use it when the distance doesn't matter, when all the stars are at the same distance. Which an example would be what we just looked at today. What was our first picture of the day? It was a star cluster. All those stars are exactly the same distance away from us. Exactly? Well, not they're a little bit different. But does it really make any difference? You know, if we're planning a trip from here to Los Angeles, does it matter right now where in Los Angeles you're going to? Is it any difference whether you're going on the eastern edge of Los Angeles or the western edge? Does it really make any difference in, tra in, the, in the travel? When you get there, it does. But right now, it makes no difference. It's going to be essentially the same. Yeah, one's a little bit further away, but not enough to make any difference. Same thing with these stars. All these, these stars might be light years apart, but the whole cluster might be hundreds or thousands of light years away. So the difference between the distances between the stars is minor compared to how far they are away from us. So essentially, they're all, for the purposes of this, they're all at the same distance. And then you can just use the apparent magnitudes. You don't need to know the distances for each one. You don't need to figure out luminosities or magnitudes because they're all related. In a way, that's how we do our spectroscopic parallax we talked about last time, how we measure distances. If we find the apparent magnitudes, get our HR diagram set, then we can actually use it to figure out distances. All right, so that's the axes put together. Three things we can plot on one side. Uh, luminosities increase upwards. Magnitudes, of course, numerically increase downwards. Brightness, this doesn't change anything. Brightest stars are still up here. Remember, very small magnitudes mean very bright stars. Very big, large numbers for magnitudes mean very faint stars. So magnitude numbers increase downward. You're going to be graphing this in, in lab, so go over it a little bit for you here. But you're going to put the very small numbers at the big numbers at the bottom when you put the magnitudes, the very small numbers at the top. All right, so what do we get when we plot all this? Well, we get some things like this. I think we've seen at least one of these images before. We find that most of the stars fall on a main sequence. 
which runs from the upper left down to the lower right. That's the main sequence where most of the stars end up appearing on the diagram. That's where the stars really spend the vast majority of their lives while they're producing energy in their core. When they start producing energy, they actually arrive, they, la they land on the main sequence, they have this certain temperature and this certain luminosity, and they remain there pretty much unchanging for most of their lives. They will slowly change, so the sun is slowly moving upwards, but not something that we notice in you know, individual lifetimes. Over billions of years, you know, a billion years from now, the sun will have gone from here to have gone a tiny bit further, you know, a little bit warmer, and maybe a little bit, I remember, it goes a little bit warmer, a little bit hotter first. It, ch it changes, it moves upward a little bit. So it'll get a little bit brighter. And, but very, very slight. Not something that we're going to notice in you know, 50 years, 100 years. It's not going to be any significant change in the solar output. But it is slowly changing. Eventually it'll end up in this upper corner where we have the giant stars, which is the red giant region. So we have another set of stars that come out up here. which are the red giants, and you actually get some up even further that are just called supergiants. So extremely large stars by comparison to what we saw here. These stars are relatively tiny. These are the biggest stars that we can see. So our largest stars that we can see any place are actually way up in this corner are the largest stars. Anything down, anything over here, anything over here, anything over here is going to be smaller than this. Our biggest stars, so that VY Canis Majoris that we saw the video about, right, flying around it in an airplane, that's, that's way up in this upper right hand corner. Very cool star, extremely large star. The other section that we get, starting to fill in, is the white dwarf star down here, white dwarfs down here. Those are very hot stars, but extremely tiny. So if you think about size, you go from the biggest stars here, imagine going diagonally down, you go down to the smallest stars down in the corner here. Extremely hot, but very, very faint. Faint stars down here, very hot stars, they're hot and faint stars. They're really the dead core of a star, something that the sun will become in a few billion years. That's what will be left over of the sun's core. Outer material goes out into, gets expelled out into space, and that core is left behind to simply cool off. No energy source. So it has no way to produce any more energy. It's just going to sit there for the rest of its life and slowly cool off. It's slowly going to get cooler and slowly going to get fainter. So they're actually going to move over time. They're going to go from here down to here and so on and continually get cooler and cooler and fainter until they completely cool off. How long that will, will that take? Well, eventually a white dwarf comes with, comes with what we call the black dwarf, meaning it's just completely cooled off, but no, no, no black dwarf has ever formed yet in the history of the universe. The cooling process is very slow. It takes a long time for these to cool off. They were at millions of degrees. They cool down to tens of thousands. To get them to cool down to Essentially, cold as space is, takes a very, take many hundreds of billions or trillion years for them to actually cool off that much. 
eventually they'll get there. But not in any, not in any reasonable, not any reasonable time frame for us. The other things that we see there is that it also, the HR diagram also, and I've already put some of this up there, very large stars up here, very small stars, the smallest ones would be down here. Way down in this corner. So that's what these little lines are kind of showing as you go diagonally. These stars are all about the same size. These are about the same size. These are here 10 times bigger, 100 times bigger than the sun. A tenth, one hundredth, one thousandth, and so on going down this way. So it really, the HR diagram really can tell you something about the diameter and can tell you something about the mass. We looked at that before. Very massive stars up over here. Very low mass stars down in the corner there. So it gives us a lot of information. One diagram gives us really a lot of information about the stars. Now if we're looking at a star cluster, and that's what we're going to look at today for lab, what I'm going to have you do, is this is now where you can use the apparent magnitude. Why? I've already explained it a little bit. But apparent magnitude we can use because the distance is the same. They're all the same distance away and it really doesn't matter what that distance is. It doesn't matter if they're 100 light years or 1,000 light years or 10,000 light years away. They're all the same distance away from us. So we can use it because they're all at the same distance. That means when we plot it, we'll get a nice uh, main sequence. That's, again, that's what you're going to do in, in lab. But it's because they're all the same distances, distance away from us. And we can then use that to now measure the distance. So it's sort of another method to be able to measure distances. This is really another version of spectroscopic parallax that we already mentioned. But we can actually determine that distance with this wonderful log formula. And yeah, that's the one I threw on. It's, a, it's the same equation as the one I put on there. It'll look a little bit different because the one you have is in a little bit different format. Uh, either one, they're actually exactly the same equation. But what it says is that there's two magnitudes. There's an apparent magnitude and an absolute magnitude. If you can measure those two, you can measure how bright a star appears to be in the sky. If you can determine where its, where its main sequence is, you can then determine how bright those stars really are how intrinsically bright they are. If you can find those two numbers, then we can find the distance. The only other thing we don't know in that equation is the distance. And astronomers write this number as little m minus capital M is they call the distance modulus. Which is really just means that if you determine those two numbers, you can figure out the distance to that star. That's what we're doing in spectroscopic parallax. We're knowing what we're knowing. We're measuring how bright the star appears to be. We're determining how bright it really is from, uh, sorry, we're determining how bright it really is from the main sequence. And then we have a couple fives. We have a yucky logarithm there and we've got a distance. So if we can do that, we can find the distance. We can add five, then divide that whole thing by five. And you've got to get rid of the logarithm function. Uh, the inverse of a logarithm function is just raising 10 to that power. So we don't need to worry about the details of that. Uh, logs aren't really covered a whole lot in math classes. It used to be a very convenient for doing calculations. They're not really covered a whole lot anymore with calculators, but they're still used because magnitudes are based on them in astronomy. But so if you figure this out, let's just, let me just put one up here. Let's just say we had m equal to, what do we want to do? 
10. It was a tenth magnitude star, a very faint star. You needed binoculars or a telescope to be able to see it. But really, if you put it a, right, a certain distance away, 32 light years, it would be a fifth magnitude star. So looks like it's tenth magnitude. Really is fifth magnitude. If we put those in here, you'd find that 10 minus 5, okay, put this, put the two, two magnitudes in there, is equal to Now we know everything except the distance and we can figure that out. 10 minus 5 is 5. Add 5 to both sides to get rid of this. So that's going to get you 10 over on this side. Divide by 5 gives you 2. If on your calculator you have a log function, you just do an inverse log. It's really raising 10 to that power. So that gives you a D on this side and 10 to the second or 100 parsecs would then be the distance. So if a star appears to be 10th magnitude, but its luminosity and its main sequence position tell us that it's really a fifth magnitude star, that's its luminosity, then we can determine the distance and find out it's 100 parsecs away. As long as we can measure the star, the, the spectrum of the star, to determine its spectral class, and as long as we can measure its brightness, we can use that then to determine the distance. Again, you're going to look at that on the homework. I do have you do something like this on the homework. Um, do your best. Make, an, make a quick attempt at it. If you don't get it, don't spend, don't spend hours trying to figure it out. If you want to go over it with me, happy to stop by and go over it with you. But just, you just try it. I want you to have seen it. Again, I've shown you once here. I want you to look at it quickly on the homework. But again, don't spend, don't spend hours, hours on it. That is what we call spectroscopic parallax. And that's how we determine the distances to most of the stars that we know distances to in our galaxy. All right. So what we're going to look at today in lab is something closer to this. In fact, you're going to make two HR diagrams quite like these. I have two sets of data, one for a type of cluster called an open cluster, which is what we saw in our picture of the day today. Those are very spread out, open, they're very spread out. They're also not bound together gravitationally. What does that mean? That means if we come back in a billion years, this cluster is gone. Not just the stars all died, but the stars are just slowly moving apart. There's not enough gravity to hold them together. Our solar system is gravitationally bound together. Come back in a billion years, planets are still going to be orbiting right where they are. They're not going to change significantly. The, the sun's gravity is strong enough to bind everything. The total mass of all these stars is just not enough to hold them together. And if you come back millions of years from now, they'll be slowly spreading out. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions, they'll just slowly spread out and diffuse out into space and be part of, our part of the rest of our galaxy. So that's one we're going to look at. Those are the very young clusters because they've got the very hot stars up here on the main sequence that don't live very long and they're still all together. The other type that you're going to look at is a globular cluster. Globular cluster, the big glob of stars, how it gets its name. And these are gravitationally bound together. So you could come back in 10 billion years, that cluster is still going to be there. Some of the stars will have come and gone by then, but the cluster itself will look relatively unchanged. 
it's still going to be the same, same cluster. It's going to be there billions of years, 5 billion years, 10 billion years from now. There is enough gravity in this cluster that it's like its own mini galaxy. It just holds everything together. When we plot the temperatures and luminosities of all those stars, here we did for the open cluster, we pretty much just found the main sequence and a few in the red giant phase. Over here, we see here's our main sequence. We still see that, but it ends right about here. It's done. All these stars that would have been on the main sequence, they're gone. They were there a long time ago, but they've reached the end of their lives. Okay, these ones lasted a couple million years, tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. But after 10 billion years, all of those have all gone through their lives and they're dead. So there are no stars left in that section. What we do see starting to form, we saw some red giants here, we start to see lots more red giants forming over here. And we see another stretch we call the horizontal branch. We'll go through that a little bit more in chapter 12. Uh, but we have a few other sections that start to appear. I'm not going to put them up on there because I'm really uh, getting, trying to get you to the main ones right now. The main sequence, the red giants up here, super giants, the white dwarfs. But those are the different areas the stars will go through during their lives. So really what we're getting at is a picture here of what, how the stars go through their lives at a certain phase. What different stages they go through. So a single star will actually make a path quite like this. Over time, as it, as it goes through its life, it'll move from here. Its brightness will increase and its temperature will decrease. It'll become a red giant. It will reach the horizontal branch. It'll be over here. It'll actually become bluer again. And then it will actually get redder and redder again before shedding its layers and coming around as a white dwarf. Again, I just did all of Stellar. That was chapter 12 in about 30 seconds. So we're going to go through that in much, much more detail. But that's giving us a picture of what this star, these stars right here at the edge of the, edge of the main sequence are just doing. What they're doing and what they're going to be doing. We're seeing that, that phase of it. What the older ones are doing, we don't know from this cluster. We've got to look at other clusters to find out what these stars do when they, when they die. So what can we learn? Uh, a star moves, I tell you a star moves around the HR diagram. It does as it goes through its life, but moving around doesn't mean the star is physically moving through space. It has nothing to do with that. When we move around the HR diagram, all we're saying is that a star, you know, there's our sun somewhere right about in the middle. That's all we're saying is that star is changing. It's changing temperature as it goes through its life. It might get cooler at times. It might get hotter at times. As it does, it'll move left or right on the diagram. It will get brighter and it will get fainter. The sun will get brighter at times. When it becomes a red giant or supergiant, it will move up and become much brighter. It'll be lower. So uh, when I say moving, it's not physically the star moving. It is actually the star changing its temperature and luminosity. So a star like the sun will start out here, right on the main sequence, move up into a red giant and supergiant phase, and then come back around and end up as a white dwarf. Actually, well, starting out, as it starts out where we see the sun, the star actually starts out way up here too. It starts out kind of towards the red giant area, uh, which is what we'll talk about in the next, next chapter when we get to chapter 11. You said when they move top to bottom, that's their, that's their change in 
Right. If you're moving, if you're moving up or down, you're changing the brightness. So they'll both change together, though. So one just won't change with the other. Usually, it'll, like the sun is going to move into the red giant phase. It's going to get cooler, and it's going to get brighter. So it's going to cool off. It'll get, go from 6,000 degrees to 5,000 to 4,000 to 3,000. But it's going to go from brightness of the brightness of the sun to 10 to 100 to 1,000 or more times brighter than it is right now. So both things will actually be changing. And again, we'll go through the, that in much more detail. But here's kind of a sketch of what happens for a star like the sun. Uh, coming from one of the next chapter, from chapter 12. Sun's there right now. It's going to change. It's going to zip up to the red giant phase. It comes back down to what we call the horizontal branch. It zips back up again. And then it kind of sheds its outer layers and ends up as a white dwarf. And I said, a star spends all its life on the main sequence. And it spends all its death for a star like the sun as a white dwarf. There's no energy source. All it's doing is slowly cooling off, slowly releasing its energy out into space. And it will go from being tens of thousands of degrees to thousands of degrees to hundreds of degrees to degrees to approaching the background of space, which is three degrees. But it will take that hundreds of billions of years to get there. So no star has had enough time in 14 billion years even a white dwarf that formed shortly after the universe would not have had time to cool off. It's still going to be there as a white dwarf. Eventually, though, it will, be, it will cool off completely. Okay, let me go ahead and do the little, I think it's this one, yep, there it is. Little animation here just to kind of show what the stars go through. If we look at, oh, let's see, let's do the low mass star first and let's let the let's do the big mass star first. Let's start with a really massive star, 100 times the mass of the sun. So you're going to expect when I click create star, it's going to start off way up over here in the upper left. It's a lot more massive than the sun. It's going to be really high up the main sequence and it's going to kind of take it through its life here. So, here it is, nice and slow. It's going to we're going to speed this up here in just a minute. But th- just to give you a hint, here's the years. Even a very massive star, you can see it's slowly moving. We've gone 50,000 years. It's not doing very much. It's just, it's just sitting, it's essentially just sitting there. And if you can tell, it's slowly moving to the right. I'm going to click this auto button because that'll auto scale it so you can actually see. Now time is going a lot faster. We're up millions of years, two million years. That's what the star is going to do. It's not the star is not moving any place. It's staying where it was, but it's actually changing its in this case, temperature. It's just cooling off. And you'll watch it go from blue into a whiter. Notice how the blue is getting more and more pale into a white and then over into a yellow, orange, and into a red. So a very massive star does something like that. Time scale, about 3 million years. So they don't live very long. After that, eventually, that would likely be a supernova. That star would have exploded and be gone. So only takes a few million years. What if we look for something, let's go down, let's see if 10 is good. About 10 times the mass of the sun. Let's try something down there. Again, I've left it auto, but look at the timing already. We're already at 18 million years. So it's barely moving off. That other star is long since gone in that time frame. Same process. All these stars, no matter where they are, head towards the red giant, head towards the red giant phase. Let's do a 2. Let's do 5 and then 2. Since we're running at auto, okay? 
Again, now we're already at 60 million, 60 million years. So again, time-wise, the time is changing drastically as we get to smaller and smaller stars. This one's already up at 73 million years. And again, cooling off, they're all moving over towards the same part. Not exactly the same place, but you can see how that one gets very, very red. In fact, a really deep, really, really deep red star, really cooled off. And we'll go through the details of a little bit about how it moves there. Let me do a two, about twice the, let's just do the, let's just do a solar mass one. Let's do a star like the sun. Now if you look at that, we've already took billions of years before it even started moving. So if I'd let this run at, you know, 100 years per click, we'd be sitting here for a long, long time waiting for that sun to do anything. But it becomes a red giant down towards like a horizontal branch and then goes up, up into the red giant phase. And then finally, just to give, that's about 6 billion years or so there to go. And then if we do a lowest mass star, this will run is about 0.7. And again, watch the time. That first one was done in 3 million years. We're at 20 billion years. We're at twice the sun's life already. So in order to really see anything happen, what does that do? Those stars, the very coolest stars, pretty much just go straight up. Ends up right about where the sun would. So that's what I mean by moving. Moving doesn't mean the star is moving. Moving means the temperature and or the luminosity is changing as they go through their lives. And that will happen for any star from the lowest mass to the highest mass. The patterns will be slightly different. We'll go over the suns in detail and then we'll look at more massive stars uh, in the coming chapters. So I wanted to show you, give a little bit of a visual there to kind of see what it means when I say they're moving around the HR diagram. They're going from here over time up into the red giant range. I didn't, this doesn't run the rest of it down to where they end up as a white dwarf though. Alrighty. Oh, question, yeah. Sorry. Yes. There are stars that are close to going supernova. The problem is what we talked about before. We don't know how close. And close, once a star gets to the stage where it's going to become a supernova, it takes literally a day. Once it gets to that phase, it's incredibly quick. But it might take hundreds of thousands of years to get to And we don't know whether it's day one of that 100,000 years or day you know, you're 900,999.9, or if it's right there. So that's the thing. There are stars that are being monitored to, to, to explode, but we don't know if they'll happen this year, or 10 years from now, or 100, or 1,000, or 10,000 years. That's, that's the problem. All right, let me finish up here what I wanted to do, but really I kind of showed you this a little bit. Um, the stellar evolution, the massive stars go really fast, 3 million years. Low mass ones taking many billions of years. And the white dwarf is what the sun will end up, is something like what the sun will end up becoming. And that's what the last couple slides here are. This just shows where the white dwarfs go. Uh, they're very hot. They're down in this very corner. They're some of the smallest stars, extremely hot, but extremely faint, so they're tiny. They're about the size of the Earth. Uh, they're slowly going to move down to the right as they cool off and get cooler and cooler and cooler and fainter and fainter and fainter and therefore harder and harder to detect. Right? They're not very easy to see as they are, even at you know, Earth-sized objects that are this hot are still very faint for us to see. 
but white dwarf, but a, a cooler white dwarf is going to get harder and harder to see. And all it really is is the dead core of a star when it's expelled its outer layers out into space. And I'll, throw, I'll show up the last slide. I have one more slide here. I'll show in a cell. You can see it off to the right because I haven't put this back in slideshow mode. But that's what the sun will actually look like, something like that little image to the left below here in about five billion years. Its outer layers get expelled out into space. And what's left behind, let me show this and I'll come back if anybody wants to get that down. Uh, there's the outer layers. This is just the outer layers of the star expelled out into space. There's the core. That's the white dwarf star. Eventually these just expand out into space and dissipate out into the rest of the interstellar material and the core will remain behind. So I'm going to put that up in case anyone was working on that and wanted to get that back down. Questions? Alrighty, then I guess we're ready for the quiz. Um, I'll give you a last minute to look over the board before I erase it, but pretty much your quiz is do you know the HR diagram? So how well can you reproduce that? So you may want to <laughs> take a look at it. Do you remember? So that's why I said I pretty much put everything up there today and that's what I'm going to ask you to do is, you know, can you remember, the, do you remember what goes on this axis? Do you remember what goes on this axis? Can you tell me where the main sequence, the red giant, stars, large stars, small stars, white dwarfs would, would go? So, give you a few seconds to look at it. Hopefully you got it in your notes. And then I'll be giving you a, the quiz. We'll ask you to do that. After you take the quiz, uh, take break. You take a break for a little bit and then we'll come back and do the, do the lab. I'll erase this first and work my way over there. So, that's why I said I went over everything for the quiz. All right. The quiz is just the HR diagram. Essentially, if you can reproduce what I just erased, you got it. And if you can still see some of it through there, you got an advantage, I guess. <laughs> I guess I could get the spray and erase it if I really want to. I don't know how vis it's visible. It's vaguely visible to me. I don't know. Can you see it? No, you're not going to tell me you can see it even if you can, right? <laughs> All right.